All right, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Grease the Wheels, your weekly technician podcast coming out of the rock and roll garage and out of the mouth of your Uncle Jimmy. Sweet old Alabama just came to an end, so I'm going to do the podcast now. She just punched Candace Bergen in the face, and now it's over. Hey, uh, wanted to just say real quick out there to all you gentlemen and all of you ladies who are in this particular industry, if you work as a mechanic, if you fix anything at all from toasters to Teslas, I uh, I want to say thank you and I appreciate what you do. And I want to try to say that as sincerely as I possibly can, because I do mean it. The lights are on, the heat's on, uh, everything's working as far as I can tell. And it's probably because of you folks out there with the wrenches and the tools. Wrenches are tools, your tool. Now, one of the things I wanted to do today was talk to you about the numbers. Now, let me let me dive right into this, okay? There are, uh, and, and, and you hear this every time you listen to this podcast, and this is not going to be any exception to the rule here. Uh, as far as, as we go, as far as technicians, and especially automotive technicians, which is where this whole podcast is sort of aimed, there's a shortage of us. I keep telling you that, right? Well, let me tell you something about that shortage real quick. When there's a shortage of technicians, that means that the supply is low. You've heard this one before. Uh, but the demand for what we do and the demand for our services at shops and dealerships across the nation and probably across the planet too, for that matter, has risen. It's it's risen. It has risen and it is rising and it's going up and up and up. And the, and the supply is not keeping pace with the demand, not by any stretch of the imagination. That point is driven home by the fact that where I work at least, we have more lifts than techs. And any accountant in, in the world worth this salt, which isn't much anyway, uh, will tell you that if you have 10 lifts or 20 lifts or 40 lifts, that you should have 10 technicians or 20 technicians. You should have a technician on every lift. And every lift should make X amount of dollars. Every lift in your building should make X amount of dollars. And that's the formula for profit. That's the formula for being a successful service department or fixed operation, as they like to say. Uh, that's the formula. Okay, You want you as an accountant, as somebody who is in charge of, of punching the numbers into an adding machine, that's what you want to see. You want to see a technician on a lift turning X number of hours. Okay, That's the formula for success. When you have lifts and you don't have enough technicians for those lifts, those lifts make you exactly fucking zero. Now, I, I, I got to tell you, I have two lifts where I work because we we have, you know, I mean, I, I can't really tell secrets out of school here. I don't want to get in trouble. I'm probably already in trouble. But uh, we have uh, a great many less technicians than we do lifts, which I think some of you may envy that, uh, may envy that uh, situation. And it's, it is actually enviable to be in too, because on a given day, there's somebody off. And so there's extra empty lifts on certain days. Uh, having two, like I do, and most of us in the shop have two lifts that we can use. It allows you to do more diagnosis and more repairs without having to swap cars out. So you get to save time and you still will earn money per lift if you're efficient and you can be even even more efficient if you have two okay all right it's not you know it's not rocket science if you have two lifts you should be able to do pretty close to twice as much and some of us and i would say a great many of us in the 
at least in the facility that I work in, are fairly efficient at, at making good use of both lifts. And I try to be myself, but as I told you last week or a couple of weeks ago, sometimes I get a car ditched in there while I'm breaking my balls on the other lift. It happens, it happens. But if I have downtime, I can go over and, and work on that car. And and uh, perhaps when I get the opportunity to finally work on that car, maybe farther ahead than I was before. Now, I wanted to throw some numbers out there for you so you can take a look at them, so you can listen to them and, and, and be amazed be amazed at what the industry that we are a part of does, okay? And I'm talking to automotive technicians, and I apologize to anybody who might feel left out in this particular podcast. I I don't plan it that way. It's just that's uh, always what I'm pretty much trying to aim at. Uh, What I did was found a list of the top 25 25 automotive groups, okay, companies that own more than one dealership typically, and some of these uh, groups own uh, upwards of 100 and 200, and I think the top one owns pretty close to 300 if I'm not mistaken. So obviously the uh, profit that they make and the uh, revenue that they purported to this particular uh, website or that this particular website actually found, those profits were fucking enormous, okay? I mean, there's no other way to put it. They were fucking huge, boys and girls. Uh, The top 25, now what I did was I went through with a calculator and calculated fairly quickly uh, just using the first couple, two, three digits of the revenue for each one of them and came up with the top 25 automotive groups in the United States had close to $153 billion of revenue. That's 25 companies, billions billions. A lot of companies had 1 billion, 2 billion. I mean, it can you even wrap your mind around a billion. Okay. When a lottery gets to a billion, people go crazy and play the shit out of it. These companies are earning that on a regular basis. Okay. Now revenue, revenue does not uh, indicate how much was spent to earn that revenue. There's expenses. You know that everybody knows that, you know, your paycheck comes home and you made X amount of dollars that week. And now all of a sudden you got to buy groceries and pay bills. And when you're done, you're left over with probably nickels, dimes, and quarters. Who knows? Who knows what it's like in your household? Uh, I try personally to keep my expenses down. And that leads me to my next subject, the next numbers that I want to report to you. And I don't know the age of this particular uh, statistic. And I suspect that it's actually a couple, two, three years older than current. Okay. But it does say this. It says the typical car on the road is a record high 11.5 years old. I think it's even higher now. And I'm the one who's kicking the shit out of those numbers because I have old cars, man. I'm not buying anything new right now. I can't really afford it, okay? I probably could if I stocked up on ramen noodles and drank water from drinking fountains instead of buying bottled water or anything like that. But I don't want to do that, especially when a car, uh, any kind of a new car just depreciates all kinds of fucking thousands of dollars the minute you drive it over the curb, off the lot over the curb. That's a a salesman's term for the car's gone and I don't have to worry about that fucking guy anymore. (laughs) That's what they say. Oh, that car's over the curb. I don't even need to hear from that guy. But uh, so the cars are getting older. So what that means is that the revenue earned from the service department is where any kind of dealership or shop is going to earn their money is in the service department, right? Isn't that that how it would work? I mean, if you're not selling a guy a new car and you're just fixing his old one, that's your opportunity to make money off that guy. So what you've done Really, what has happened is because cars are so expensive and finance, they they got them now where they finance them up to seven years. It's like ridiculous. In my family, I have people who could put 100,000 miles on a car in two years. What are they going to do in seven years, right? Well, the, the quick math would say that the fucking thing's going to have half a million miles on it by the time they're done 
paying for it. How many times are they gonna have to have it serviced? Well, how many times do you think you're gonna have to change the oil in a car that has half a million miles on it? Yeah, a fucking lot, right? Okay, so the service departments really, and especially now with the fact that there's, uh, oh, well, not a whole hell of a lot of new cars coming out the door, coming off of car carriers. Um, All the ones that come off the car carrier at our place right now, at least, are sold, which is actually something I predicted a while back. Um, I don't suspect that that trend is really going to hold up too long once once somebody pulls their head out of their ass and figures out that they need to make microchips here in the United States and they become available and people can get new cars without having to wait three, four, five weeks and maybe two months, three months, four months, uh, then everything will kind of go back to a little bit of a normal kind of a setup. But I think that a lot of things have been demonstrated to car dealers and car manufacturers over the course of the last two years because of the pandemic and because of the supply of chips and other supply chain problems is that they may not even build cars for stock anymore. They may just have you come in and order one and that's just how it's going to go. And you may not even have to come in and order one. You may just be able to do it right from your laptop or your even your fucking phone. You could probably order a brand new car from your phone. And I think a lot of places are set up like that. And so I think that the dealership and the franchise, uh, the franchises that, that exist now and have these rules in place about dealerships, uh, you know, selling cars to people, I think that those rules are going to have to either be modified they have to be thrown away or they're just going to be uh, widely disregarded completely, okay? Because uh, if people don't want to come into your dealership to talk to some swarmy motherfucker who, who's, you know, out back vaping all the time and uh, wanders around and looks like he's busy, but he's not. And then when he has to talk to a customer, he's condescending or he makes a judgment call and then they buy a car from him. And then and then if they call him later about something, he doesn't want to talk to them. He's already sold the car. He's finished dealing with them. He'll direct them to the service department, hang up the phone and go, what the fuck are they calling me for? So really a good chunk of the employees at all these car dealers out there are really, quite frankly, obsolete and uh, will be probably sent on their way within the next couple, two, three years by a, a real honest God sea change a real paradigm shift in the sales departments of these car dealers. And the franchises themselves may not exist as as they exist now because there's not going to be any reason for it. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't take, and I mean, you know, if you work in one of these uh, larger dealerships where they have a service drive-on that's, you know, four, five, six lanes, there's no reason why they couldn't dedicate one of those lanes to just delivering new cars that were bought over the internet and just delivered to the service center. And a genius or whatever you want to call them comes out and tells them how to use the car and off they drive. They sign some papers saying, yeah, I agree to buy the car and uh, here's my signature and uh, put put plates on it, please. And uh, maybe fill up the gas tank and uh, I'm fucking out of here. No having to talk to a finance people, no having to talk to sales managers, no having to talk to salespeople whatsoever. I know what I want. I looked at it online. There it is. Okay. So uh, the pandemic is going to open up new avenues for revenue for a lot of dealerships. It's also going to close some. Now, here's a figure that, that pops off the screen at me because it's so fucking enormous. And this is getting back to the service side of it. Uh, global automotive aftermarket industry is expected to reach $722.8 billion by 2020. Okay. So that was a prediction from before 2020. Now, I don't think that they were able to predict what was going to happen in 2020. I don't think anybody could really, except for the people who helped to perpetrate it. That's a lot of fucking money, ladies and gentlemen. That's uh, three quarters of a trillion dollars. And a trillion would be a million billion. 
And if you, I don't even know if you can wrap your mind around that. I mean, what out there really do you, are you ever going to see a trillion of? I mean, you're not, you're just not. Uh, that's a lot of money. And, and, and I feel like myself personally that there is such an enormous and intense, uh, opportunity for profit for people who are in the automotive industry. And yet I think they're missing a point. I think they're missing the point that service is really going to be the only thing that a dealership or a franchise is going to be able to offer in the future. Everything else is going to be taken out of their hands by the internet. That's that's just, a, maybe it's a prediction. Maybe it's a, a, a fortune. Maybe I'm just being a fortune teller or maybe I'm just be having uh, wishful thinking. So let me move on here. Now, what I want you to do if you work in a shop or dealership, I want you to do a little math on your own. And we have done this at my particular place. We, we took it upon ourselves to do it early on. Now, as a shop, as a fixed operation, we started out with service repair orders and they're numbered. There's always a number to them. You have to do that. You really almost have to do that because, you know, you can refer to a service order by its name. It doesn't have a name and you can't refer to a service order by the customer's name because there may be more than one and they may be more than one in a couple of days. It depends on what's going on with that car. So the service orders are numbered. Now you can bet your bottom dollar that every company that ever created a service order of any kind started at the number one. There's no other number to start at. You're going to start at one. Even as a baby, as a child, you started out at one. You you were zero until you got to your first year and then you were one. And then from there, you added more numbers to your age. It's the same with the service orders. Okay. It's the same. It's the same fucking thing. Now take a look at that number of service orders in the corner of your repair orders. Take a number. Take a look at that number. Now think about it for a minute and imagine to yourself a possible average, okay? Now, we've t- I've talked about this before. This is from a little while back, but uh, I think it's valid, and I think about it more often than I probably should. But what it does is it tells you quite inaccurately, maybe, or quite, uh, you know, just not very, uh, it's, just, it's just a estimate, okay? But let's just say you have a specific number of ROs. Let's just, uh, we'll use my own particular shop for an, an example. Uh, we just hit 61 thousand repair orders. Okay. 61,000. Some of you have repair order numbers that are in the multiple thousands, you know, 155,792 or something like that. Okay, great. Now try to figure out what an average would be for each arrow, just an average. Okay. You got some that are worth maybe 60, 80 bucks, maybe a hundred, maybe 200 even. And then you've got others that are worth a thousand, two thousand, maybe even three thousand. You know, I mean, you're you're familiar with what you do and how much you make, right? So go ahead and pick a number that might be just just do what Uncle Jimmy does and make up a number that might sound like a good average dollar amount per RO, an average. Okay. Now the one the number that we came up with for the place where I'm working was was right around five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollar average per RO. I think that there's many that are more, there's quite a few that are less. Uh, obviously the for every one that's much higher it cancels out ones that are much lower. We came up with five hundred and we felt like that was a good round number to accurately, you know, somewhat accurately call out how much each RO is worth. Okay. So and it's it's not rocket science, okay? So I have sixty one thousand ROs times 500. And this is a rough, like I said, this is a super rough figure for how much money we've earned our company through our fixed operations in just our building alone in the last three and a half years, $30.5 million. 
30.5. Now, obviously that's gross. There's payroll that's got to come out of that. There's expenses that have to come out of that. There's all kinds of things. Plus, we have to amateurize the building. I mean, the building wasn't put up for free, for Christ's sakes. They tell me all the time, well, it was $42 million to build that building. And I'm like, man, you overpaid because our building has been falling apart since day one. So uh, it's in tough shape sometimes. And uh, we have to call people to come out and fix dumb stuff like holes in the roof and air conditioning that doesn't work. You know, shit that shouldn't be broken even one or two years in. And it's been broken several times, two, one, two, and three years in now. So, uh, but that's a lot of money. And uh, I don't, uh, I honestly, I want to say this out loud. I don't uh, hold a grudge against anybody who wants to make a lot of money. I don't hold a grudge against anybody who owns an automotive group or a, a dealership of any kind. I do not hold any kind of ill will towards them. And it can actually Actually, I can appreciate the uh, initiative and the chutzpah, the uh, the balls or whatever you want to call it, to go out and, and try to create a company that earns that much money. I'm, I'm actually impressed. And there were some companies out there that made enormous amounts of money. And I, I took a look at some of them here. Uh, I think the top earner out there, this is in the US, and this was for 2020. The top earner out there was AutoNation Group. Okay, now they had... I think they had something like, I want to say, close to 300 dealers. It was a lot. It might have been 200. I can't find those figures right here right now as I speak. But uh, they made in 2020, even though it was a pandemic year, they reported revenue of $20.4 billion. And they have roughly uh, 26,000 employees. And I say roughly because obviously it's rounded off. And it changes all the time, just because you know, as well as I do, that you have enormous turnover at dealerships. You could walk in one year and meet everybody in that dealership. There might be 60, 70 people working there. You walk in one year later and good three quarters of that staff is turned over. And people just don't work in these places very long. And that, that's not just technicians. That's, you know, upfront people, salespeople, carporters, advisors, parts people, managers, uh, F&I people. There's a lot of turnover. There's a lot of turnover. And I, I'm not sure exactly why I could, can't put my finger on that. I know why technicians leave. Uh, there's always a better opportunity for somebody who has skills. There's always a better opportunity for somebody who has uh, experience and skills. There's always better opportunities for somebody who has experience and skills and is smart and does a good job. And if they feel like they're underpaid, even if maybe according to their particular business, according to their particular location, the people who work there, the managers, the general manager, the service manager, the advisors, maybe the other the other technicians, maybe they don't feel like he's worth it. Or maybe they don't feel like he's worth more. But I can assure you, as I'm sitting here right now, there are a lot of other people out there who don't work in your facility who do feel like you're worth it. And so I guess what I'm saying here is uh, figure out what you think you're worth. Don't ask anybody else at your place what they think you're worth. Go find out what you think you're worth from other people who would love dearly for you to come and work for them. They'll let you know what they think you're worth by actually paying you. And if it's not good enough, then, you know, just tell them. So. I'm going to take a pass. Now, here's some statistics from a site I found. I'm not going to. I'm not going to call them out. Uh, this, their site, their statistics seem to be very broad based, and possibly they're even made up. You know, like your uncle Jimmy does. Uh, trends and statistics. 
The average age of the U.S. vehicle has increased 17% in the last 10 years. Okay, I get that uh, because the price has increased probably more than 17% in the last 10 years. And quite frankly, who the fuck can afford it? Only people of uh, greater means, and, and they're typically not you and I. The average length of vehicle ownership for new and used vehicles has increased 60% in the last 10 years. What that means is, is that, yes, the vehicles on the road are older and they're getting older by 17%, but that doesn't mean that they're owned by the same person. They're just still out there. You know, so if you had a car and you had it for six years and you sold it, that guy's, according to this, he's going to keep driving it for another five or six years. So what they're saying here is the average length of vehicle ownership for new and used vehicles has increased 60%. People are keeping them longer. 75% of aftermarket auto repair is performed by independent auto repair shops, while 25% of the business lives with the dealerships. I don't have any trouble believing that because one of the things that I saw when I worked at an independent was that all you had to do was really be like a couple of dollars cheaper than the dealer and they were going to flock to you. They were going to flock to you in in droves. They were going to come to you. The only, only real driving force for going to an independent shop instead of a dealer is that they feel like an independent shop is going to charge them less money. Do they care necessarily about the quality? Eh, maybe. Maybe, but I, that's definitely not foremost in their mind. You know, if you have a dealership and you have trained and experienced master techs all throughout the building and you charge a lot of money for that, according to some people, maybe they are not seeing the value. They don't want to go there because it's too expensive. And maybe they just can't afford it, which is fine. I can understand that. If you have a repair you need on your vehicle and it's expensive and you don't have the money, uh, obviously you're going to look for a cheaper alternative. Are you going to care about the quality? As long as it's cheaper, maybe not. I would like to think, and this is definitely not true, and we all know this, I would like to think that the best service you can get is from a dealership. Not always true, but I would like to think that. And I think that customers believe that. And if they don't, well, then that's okay. They can believe whatever they want. But I'd like to believe that the best service that they can get is with a dealership. And when they go to an independent, and it depending on what kind of independent it, it is, because you know as well as I do, there's several genres of independents. There's independents out there who will work on anything, and they're qualified to work on nothing. Or there's some out there who will specialize in European cars. There's some out there who will specialize in Japanese cars. And there's some of them out there who don't specialize at all and will just work on anything. That technician at that particular shop who that will work on anything has to have tremendous skills because people will bring them anything. So 75% of the aftermarket auto repair being done in an independent shop, I have no trouble believing that. I have no trouble believing that because as cars get older, do they want a better high quality repair for an older car? Fuck no, they don't. <laughs> they want to try to get away as cheaply as they possibly can. And typically that is not a mantra that is fulfilled by taking your car to a dealership. That's just common sense, really. You go to a dealership, they charge you $200 an hour. You find an independent that charges 100 and it's a six-year-old car and all you need is an oil change and maybe brakes. You're already saving $100 per hour just by going to a different shop. It's just basic economics. It also says to here, there is a trend towards large franchise auto repair businesses, which have smaller shops rolling up into them. Uh, well, I do see uh, these automotive groups that I was just talking about making $153 billion. They are buying and selling dealerships in large chunks. It's like a great big, huge uh, automotive industry game of monopoly and some of these dealership groups have like i said uh upwards of 300 200 
Uh, most of them right around 100. Some of them only have uh, five or six, seven or eight, but that is a growing trend is for a company that owns dealerships to buy more of them. And pretty soon, I believe, honestly, that all of the mom and pop dealerships out there, you know, that were started by uh, your great, great grandfather just before World War II and have been passed down through the family. I think that that's a dying breed and is going away very, very quickly because you could run a family dealership. You know, I mean, you could have a dealership where it's family run, and, and I'm going to do a little story on this in the future, I think, is uh, and it's going to be fiction. It's going to be uh, what our business was like and what it, it is now and how it got there and where it's going from there. OK, uh, but I'm not going to uh, that's not this week. That's that's maybe in a couple of weeks. But because uh, I'm working on it. OK, I don't have it all put together yet in my head. But if you if, if you work for a family dealership, I can assure you, you know, maybe you see the owner every day. He walks by you in the shop to get to his office and he's the general manager as well. And he knows what he's up to because he's been working in that dealership since, you know, 15 minutes after he learned how to walk when he was two years old, you know. That was his dad's business. That was his grandfather's business. It was his, started by his great-grandfather. And so he's going to run it. But he can't keep the offers from coming in because everybody in the building that knows him, and, and I'm just going to say it to him, maybe it could be a woman. There's no, there's no reason why it couldn't be a, a lady. But I'm going to use the term him. Everybody in the building knows him. And when they work hard, they're working hard for him and the success of the company and the success of themselves. And they're viewed by the owner by the way, sees them on a very regular basis as almost family. And that's one of the things that you lose when these automotive groups come in and buy up these dealerships. That's one of the things you lose. And I think it's very, uh, it's, it's, I find it very tragic that you lose the personal touch. Okay. Because if somebody owns a, if somebody owns a dealership now, and it was started by their father or their grandfather or their great grandfather, and they've been running it and they learned how to run it by working every job in the goddamn dealership. And they're at the top now, but they realize what it was like to be at the bottom. And so they're fair to their employees. They treat them like family. They treat them like friends. They treat them very decently. And they're very magnanimous. I worked for a dealership like that. But they're fielding offers because their dealership does a good job. The customers love that place. They make money. They sell cars. They do the job right most of the time. And, and there's, there's a good deal of uh, goodwill there between the customer base and the franchise and the, and the dealership. And so another automotive group comes in and, and wants to buy them. So if you, if you know, this guy who owns this place, this, this person who owns the building is getting these enormous offers from these automobile dealer groups, you know, such as, I mean, there's, there's tons of them out there. There's a uh, auto nation and Sonic and Lithia and, and Penske and, and, and group one. All these, all these people are out there looking to add to their portfolio. A lot of them are publicly traded and they want to increase their profits by buying profitable dealerships. And if you have a family run dealership, chances are it's profitable. So they want to bring it into their fold and they'll offer them enormous amounts of money to sell that dealership to them. And it's hard, it's hard for somebody to say, Hey, you know, uh, we've had this business evaluated at, you know, X amount of dollars and somebody comes in and offers you a lot more than that to pry it away from you. Okay, I'm selling out, you know? And the next thing you know, instead of being run by a guy who grew up working in that dealership and you think of as a member of the family, now it's some fucking asshole who was a general manager at some dealership that they had somewhere else in the world and they want to bring him in and he's going to try to do things his way and he doesn't give a fuck about you personally. He doesn't know you personally. And you know what? He's probably not even going to take the time to know you personally. If you work for one of these mom and pop franchises, 
and there's still some out there, and you see the owner, just ask him, say, how you doing? You know, just ask him how he's doing and give back to him what he gives to you. Work hard for that person. Work hard for that family. You're a part of the family, you know. And and that's where I think that uh, this particular business is going awry, okay, because all of these companies that are buying up these dealerships out there and all these automotive groups, they have massive amounts of non-franchise employees. In other words, people who work in a home office, people who do this, that, and the other thing from uh, a headquarters. They don't really have much to do with the dealership on a daily basis. So maybe in, in some cases, and probably in a lot of cases, they don't have a fucking clue what actually goes on in a dealership. And if they did have a clue, if they came in and saw what you have to do on a daily basis to get your job done, they'd freak out. They wouldn't know what to fucking do. They're like, does this go on every day? Yeah, every fucking day. Every day. And you know, you know what I'm talking about. The general chaos of, of working in a uh, fixed ops department or a service department. They just don't know. And, and unfortunately, all the money that you, you make as a shop, all the money that fixed ops makes and that used car makes and that sales makes goes into one great big pot. Great big kitty. Almost like a poker game. You know, you're all in. And then when the money comes out, it comes out in smaller chunks. Or it doesn't come out in any bigger chunks than it did before, that's for sure. Because they got a lot more employees to pay for that don't actually create any kind of commodity whatsoever, such as service, such as labor. So if you work for somebody who is not part of an automotive group, thank that particular person, that individual, that gentleman or that lady for uh, keeping you, you know, keeping you kind of as a rogue almost really in today's in today's uh environment yeah that's kind of what it would be like almost going rogue it's like look i'm not selling out you know i'm not selling out i don't care what you want to do you could build five dealerships around me if you want but i'm going to stay right here and do this job just like my father did we're going to have uh, ups and downs and we're going to make a profit and it may not be huge but uh you know what we're part of a community we're not part of an auto group okay i think that that's where the difference lies when you when you work for a mom and pop you're part of that particular community and the, and the community is the people who go there as uh, customers and people who work there as employees. And and you're all dependent on each other. And the money doesn't have to go anywhere else. It stays right in that fucking town. It stays right in that community. And when you get bought by an automotive group, that money can go anywhere. The other thing that's going on too here, it says here as far as trends and statistics go, and this is the last point, it says the aftermarket world is going online and the marketplace is changing. Parts are being sold online. And it says here the service is being sold online. That the service being sold online is not really happening yet. That is actually... What uh, Eric and I are trying to do is uh, move uh, the sales of service online so that uh, it can go directly to you guys, you people out there. That's what we're trying to do with the, 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 the podcast is kind of an informational tool for this particular business that we're working on, whereby the customer contacts you personally and has you fix their car instead of XYZ Garage or XYZ Chevrolet or PDQ Ford or wherever else you guys work, instead of having cars that are broken going to a dealership or an independent shop where they're going to pay $150 an hour up to up to $200 an hour, instead of having to go there, what we want them to do is to come to you and you're going to charge them $50, $60, $75 an hour, half, maybe even more than half less than what they would have paid normally. Yeah, the customers are going to jump on it. 
And you need to jump on it too, I'm telling you. When we get this thing ready and we drop it on you, I want you all to be ready. I want you all to be ready to sign up and I want you all to be ready to get a lot of work done and make an ass load of money because we're gonna take the middleman outside and we're gonna beat the fucking shit out of him and leave him for fucking dead. And that's gonna put more money in your pocket and it's gonna allow your, our customers to keep money in their pocket. That's what's gonna happen. Now here's something else that came up on this particular uh, webpage that I found here, opportunities for the aftermarket. This is something, and I don't know as if, the, now they're using statistics from 2015. I guess that's probably as new as they could get with this site. The site itself may be older too. And uh, I'm just digging it out of the archives. This next part is called Older Car Owners Exhibiting desirable maintenance behaviors. Now, I'm not seeing that, okay? But I'm working also at a, a new car dealership. So, uh, and and plus two, I have to battle with uh, service advisors who don't really want to sell anything, or at least that's the way it appears to me. And I may be, I may be way off base there, but I don't think so, okay? As I've told people in the past, and uh, maybe some of you remember my rant about air filters, okay? Whenever I get a vehicle in that I'm working on, whether I'm doing maintenance or whether I'm working on it, I will recommend if they have over 50,000 miles on the vehicle, I will recommend replacing the air filter. I don't look at it. I don't need to look at it. I know what it looks like. I know what they, I know what it looks like. It's full of dirt. And if the vehicle has over 50,000 miles on it or has, you know, over 10 years, I will recommend an air filter. So in a six month period of time, let's just say from January to June, I probably worked on and I work on about six cars a day, so that's about 30 a week, and that's that works out to be roughly 750 cars. Uh, some some weeks I work on, some days I work on more, some days I work on less. Well, let's just call that a good baseline number. Let's say in a six-month period, I've worked on, looked at, or performed maintenance on 750 cars in a six-month period. Probably out of that 750, I have recommended air filters replacement on, I'm going to say a quarter of them. A quarter of them. Okay, so how many is that? Because I don't know. I have to, let me get the calculator back out. Roughly 190 cars. Let's just put it, let's just round it up, okay? Let's just say out of 750 cars I worked on in six months, 190 of those cars I recommended an air filter for. Great. You know how many got sold? Three. So I don't know what I'm running up against. Maybe the air filters are just really expensive, and I think they are. Or the customer doesn't think they need it, which is wrong. Or the service advisor is not selling it. But for whatever reason, it's just not getting done. Now, on this particular chart that they're showing me here, and I don't know where they're getting these figures from. Like I say, it's not working for us. But it says older car owners exhibit desirable maintenance behaviors. It says changing their air filter. Cars that are younger, zero to three years, they're getting only about 12% of, the, of their customers wanting to change your air filter. But 11 plus years, up to from three years and on up to 11 plus years, 23%. So more people are buying air filters as their car get older. gets older. It doesn't sound right, but apparently, uh, I don't know where they get their figures from. Source, NDP Group. Okay, they've got some people who've done, who've uh, figured out that this is the way it is. Fuel filters, same thing. 7% on cars up to three years old. After that, 14% uh, start using a fuel additive, 7% again. 14% for cars older than three years after that, changing the spark plug, 6%. 6% on cars that are three years and younger. And then once you get older that, it jumps up to 11%. Start using a more premium oil. Uh, well, okay. Uh, 5% on cars that are up to three years old. And then after that, 10%. I don't, I don't really subscribe to that. I try to use the recommended oil on my vehicle at all times. If it was new or if it was old, I did buy... Uh, one of my vehicles brand new and have used the same brand of oil all the way through. 
so far. And I don't see myself changing at all. I don't want to go up or down in quality. Uh, I didn't want to start at a poor quality, so I didn't. And I just maintained that quality. I don't know how accurate that is. Start changing oil more often. 5% on the uh, cars up to three years and a 9% on the 11 plus years. Uh, changing oil more often. Well, I don't know. It just, it, to me, that's the, that particular uh, statistic right there, start changing oil more often, that represents on the, the uh, onus of the owner, it represents some ignorance towards the maintenance schedules. I don't think that you should change oil more often at all than the regularly scheduled oil interchange intervals. I don't think so. I don't think, I don't feel that way anyway. I don't feel like you should change your oil more or less often as it gets older. You should just continue to follow the same schedule. Um, what they're trying to say here is that people will start changing their oil more regularly after it's three years old. I, I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around that and believing that. I think that people put off oil changes longer once they own something longer. And eventually they get to the point, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, they get to a point that I like to call the point of no fucks given, where they're not going to change the oil at all. And when the vehicle blows up or dies or wrecks itself or, you know, somehow or another pays you back for not changing the oil, then they'll just get rid of it and get something else. And they'll lose large amounts of money on that vehicle, probably, if they've been paying for it for a long time. Now, it says here also, too, there's a chart here that says all older car owners are twice as likely to expect to spend more than $1,000. Well, yeah. I mean, if you have a car that's zero to three years old, you shouldn't have to spend anything on it. It should be covered under warranty unless, of course, you damage it. Um, obviously, if a car is older than three years and up to 11 years, you're gonna you're more likely to spend more than $1,000 on it because it's not under warranty anymore. So it really doesn't, it doesn't pan out that way. Okay, now if you do regular maintenance from day one, you get that owner's manual, you get that motherfucker out and you look at it and you read what it says because those things are written by the company that builds the fucking car. They have engineers and designers and, and all kinds of people who know what the fuck they're doing despite what some people say about them. They know what they're doing and they have said, you need to change the oil every blank. You need to change it with this kind of oil. You need to do it this often if it's a dusty or dirty environment. You need to change this, that, and the other thing at specific intervals. And I'm telling you right now that unless you drive like a kamikaze pilot or evil Knievel, your vehicle can last you a half a million miles if you strictly, somewhat strictly, follow the manufacturer's recommended maintenance intervals and change or replace anything on your car that gets broken or worn out. There is no fucking reason why you can't go many multiple thousands of miles if you take care of your car. You and I, we all know that. We all, you know, and here's the thing is every once in a while we see a car that has been taken care of properly and it looks mint. Sometimes it still looks new. Sometimes it even still smells new. And it's not that the owner did anything extraordinary they just didn't kick the shit out of the car and ignore the regular maintenance that's all can't get that through a lot of people's fucking heads they've also decided to take on some demographics here and uh <laughs> i i gotta laugh because the way they wrote this i i think it's uh i'm sorry let me get this out of the way right now it's <laughs> just fucking stupid i i feel like uh the demographics they chose to use have customers broken down into three categories which don't make a lot of sense to me. I suppose if I thought about it for a few minutes, that would make sense to me. But there's a part of it that, that's never going to make sense, okay? They have customers broken down into younger millennials, older millennials, and non-millennials. Now, non-millennials to me signifies 
either me as an old motherfucker or people who are too young to be a millennial. I don't know how that works. It, there's an asterisk next to one of them. Uh, let me see if I can find where it, it tells me what that asterisk is. It, and no, it's not on here anywhere. <laughs> it doesn't say anywhere. Demographics also plays a role in types of services used. For example, millennial customers are more likely to have had most vehicle services performed. Uh, but then it goes on here to debunk it, really. Uh, oil changes, non-millennials are 68% more likely than uh, younger millennials at 57%. Tire rotations and balances, I'll tell you what, that that really needs to go away. Uh, balancing tires should be done when they're brand new. And if you feel like you have a problem, you can certainly rebalance them later. Uh, it's not something that should be a service. It's not something you should just do every year. I don't, I mean, lead weights are, uh, you know, they're they're precious metals and they don't need to be stripped off and then have new ones put on every fucking year. And tire rotating, I don't know of any manufacturer who still recommends them. Uh, some people just do them because a grandfather used to do them all the time and, and he swears up and down that it, they, it keeps his tires from wearing out too quickly. I don't believe in it at all. I don't like doing them. And possibly one of the reasons why I don't like doing them is because all these same cocksuckers who want tire rotations have wheel locks and have no idea where the fucking wheel lock key is making my life suck worse just making my life suck period basically let me put it that way okay uh brake service it says younger millennials are 24 percent more likely to get them done i that i don't get that at all a brake service uh is that changing pads and rotors yeah you know every car is going to need brakes i don't i don't really feel like uh, one group of people or another is going to decide they don't need brakes. I don't, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But apparently they're 24% more likely to get it done than somebody who's a non-millennial at 12%. And I'm like, well, okay, that's that's just great. Except for brakes aren't one of these things that you can just ignore forever. You know, I mean, if they get right down to metal to metal, they're obviously going to make a shitload of noise. And I don't care when you were fucking born, they need to be replaced. Doesn't really matter. Uh, air filter and cabin filters. Older millennials are actually more likely to change those. I don't know what they mean by older millennials are they talking about somebody in their 30s to 40s or somebody in their 40s to 50s i don't know i don't know what they're talking about there uh you can you can certainly make up your own mind what that talks about uh the rest were all won by the younger millennials which i can only assume is probably 20 to 30 but that's a guess on my part it doesn't it doesn't qualify what that is uh but uh, they're all they're better and more likely to have these services performed: tire replacement, car wash, vehicle inspection, steering and suspension, and tire alignment, wiper blades, and air conditioning service. They're more likely to get those done than all the other ones. Uh, older millennials, maybe they don't have the money. Non millennials, I still don't know what non millennials are. Whether those are older non millennials or younger non millennials, whatever. If you're gonna break something down, let me just put it to you like this, boys and girls. Uh, make the categories uh, a little bit more succinct. This didn't do it. Uh, what this also too is is trying to tell us too is is about marketing opportunities for your service department. Uh, reaching out to people. It talks about reaching out to people who've just moved. A lot of people out there are moving like crazy. The taxes are so horrendous in states like California and New York that people are just getting the fuck out of there in a hell of a hurry and moving to places where the taxes are either really low or in some cases don't even exist at all. Ramping up your digital presence. Uh, yeah, that that's a big one, ladies and gentlemen. I can tell you that for, for from experience is that if you have a website that sucks, chances are you're not going to see any kind of bump in your business from people who have either looked at it or are trying to use it, okay? So 
what you'll want to do, and, and I mean, I don't have the expertise to tell you where to go with this. I don't have the expertise to really guide anybody on this. Um, and it's probably not going to be up to you at all. But if you have a website for your company, be it an independent shop or be it a uh, dealership of some sort, you need to uh, take a look at the service end of it. Because I have seen many car dealerships, fa- franchise car dealerships that do an absolutely god-awful job of offering service to their customers on their sites. You know, uh, some of them, yes, some of them will allow you to make a, an appointment. Someone will actually have somebody in the corner that says, how can I help you? You know, and you don't know who these people are because you know, as well as I do, if you're a technician at this particular shop and you just happen to go to your own site and somebody pops up in the corner and says, how can I help you? You know, goddamn well, there's nobody at the dealership. So who the hell is popping up in the corner saying, how can I help you? I don't know. I don't know who that is and I don't see how they could help you. Yeah, I think I need a starter for my car. And I'll be like, well, you'll have to call back at fucking seven o'clock in the morning on Monday morning. Like, okay, whatever. That doesn't help me all all that much, you know? Uh having a having a digital presence is probably gonna be one of the most important things in the future because and, and I think the future is actually now the past, really. Uh having a digital presence, having a, a presence on the internet is going to be the only way some people will ever discover who you are. So you need what you need to do, and this is just Uh, some advice from somebody who's really a lay person in this sort of thing. Uh, You're going to need to look at your website from a third party's view. Okay. You're going to have to actually jump inside the shoes of people who might use your site. You have to determine what it looks like on a phone and you have to determine what it's going to look like on a laptop. You also determine, you have to determine if the information, if all the information that anybody could ever want is actually there. What time are you open? What time do you close? Are you there on Saturday? Are there Sunday hours? Maybe uh, is is sales there late, but the service department isn't? How about the parts department? Maybe some people just need parts. Is there somebody there? Where do we go? Show me how to get there. Show me what the building looks like. Show me the pictures of the people who work in that building. You know, there's there's all kinds of different information that they could get from your site. And if they're not getting it, then it's basically just a huge fail. And then you have to do something yeah, there's things you can do to move your particular business up in the Google search columns so that you can find it. The people will find it. The closest place to, to being lost anywhere on the planet is being on page two of a Google search. Nobody's going to look on page two. They just don't do it. Okay, so you're going to have to figure out how to get yourself to the top, how to levitate. And that's a, that's a whole nother genre of, uh, of the industry that is different than creating digital content. That's putting it out there and putting it in a place where it can be seen. Totally different. Uh, one of the other things they said here is the e-tailing. Uh, I think they made that up, e-tailing. E-commerce, e-retailing, uh, selling selling anything that you sell online, sure. That's going to be uh, something that's more important for the cars and the parts. Probably not so much for service. You can, If you have a service department, you'll probably just want to make appointments. Okay, so what have we discovered this week? on Grease to Wheels, the podcast for automotive techniques. What did we discover? We've discovered that there is a shitload of money out there being spent on cars, buying them, fixing them, possibly even restoring them, possibly fixing them up after you crash them, selling them again, reselling them again, wholesaling them, retailing them, whatever. There's companies out there that are making extraordinary amounts of money. And for them... To hold wages down for a technician, I feel like it's not really helpful for them. Okay, I feel like 
and, and this is, you know, I think it's an opinion that is shared by a lot of us as technicians. And I, I am going to go out on a limb and say that we, that probably a lot, very large majority of us feel this way, that when these companies make this much money, I mean, let's just, let's just pick, pick one and call say, call out AutoNation. They are a 2021 revenue was $20.4 billion. Do you think that they could afford to pay some of the employees, especially I believe service technicians who actually create a God's honest commodity, they could afford to pay them a little more. And then this way, they wouldn't really have to scramble around to get technicians all the time. I believe that that's true. I believe also too, that there's a lot of people between the the decision makers and the managers in, in a facility and in, in the dealerships and in the franchises. There's a lot of people in between there who would ixnay that particular thought that would say, oh, no, you don't need to pay them more. We just need to find new ones. We don't need to pay them more. We need to find different ones. We need to hire people so that we can pay them less than the guys we have now. And they're going to be able to do the same thing. And that's something that I think a lot of people in upper management, management that might not even exist in your own facility, I think there's a lot of, lot. I think that they, they think that way a lot. They think that we're just pawns in a big game of chess and we can be interchanged with all the other pawns. And really, for a lot of positions in a dealership, that may be true. That may be very true. But uh, as far as service technicians go, as far as automotive technicians go, as mechanics, we know that that's really not true, okay? You bring in a new guy to my building and he starts working tomorrow, he is certainly not gonna be able to do the things that I do. Now, he's not gonna be able to do them as efficiently as I do them, as quickly. He's not gonna know what to do. He's not gonna know when to do it. He's not gonna know where to do it. He's not gonna know anything. And you could bring in all the fucking new guys you want. And maybe over time, yes, they'll figure it out. And maybe they'll be as good as me someday. But for right now, do you want to base the future of your of your dealership, the future of all of your franchises on new guys who don't know their asshole from a hole in the ground? Or would you like to stick with people who know what they're doing, know how to do it, know how to get it done quickly and efficiently, and can continue to do it day, day in and day out? Do you want these people to go away? Because that's what happens when you decide that you don't want to pay them, when you decide that they make enough money, when you decide that as an accountant or as a manager or some somebody high up in the hierarchy of one of these automotive groups, that's what you decide when you say, oh, we only pay X amount of dollars up to that point. And then after that, we don't give raises at all anymore. And you know, when you hit the glass ceiling, you know where it is. You know that they're never going to pay you a certain amount of money. You know that you're not going to get a, a very big raise because you're right at the point where they say you're too expensive. You make too much money and they'll replace you with two or three guys who make half again less than you and maybe even a third less than you and hope for good results, you know, instead of sticking with a known good formula. So uh, what I want you to do is, and then this is in response to uh, everything that I've read today and everything that I've know, that I've put out there. I want you to determine how valuable you are to yourself and I want you to determine how valuable you are to your company. And then what I want you to do is make all the attempts you can to make yourself more valuable. Training, expertise, learn how to do something different, learn how to do something better. Don't just pigeonhole yourself as a guy who does brakes. Don't pigeonhole yourself as a guy who just does oil changes. Don't pigeonhole yourself at all, okay? I can tell you right now that no matter what rolls in the door, and this is not me really bragging, it's just just a fact, and it will sound like bragging, but no matter what rolls in the door, I can fucking fix it. So I'm a go-to guy in a lot of stuff. 
And then there's a lot of guys in our shop who can also, who are and can be also go-to guys on a lot of different stuff. And these are very valuable people. The shop I'm in right now has a lot of really good technicians in it. And we have some new people too who are going to be really good. And I feel like they're all horribly, horribly underpaid. They're not fairly compensated in my opinion. And I keep my opinion on that to myself, except for on this podcast. I keep that opinion to myself in my daily routine because it's not any of my business what they get paid. Not any of my business. It's not any of their business what I get paid. And I feel like if I went somewhere else and do the things that I do here, that I would be paid more. Am I upset with how much money I make? I am not. Because of some of the other things that the company I work for does, I'm not upset with the compensation I get. I could stand to make more. Yes. Would I like to make more? Hell yes. Am I going to ask for a raise? No, not right now. I'm not going to. If my job title changes or if the workload increases or if I get to a point where I don't feel like doing it anymore, I might, I might, offer, I might offer up the fact that I need a raise. And then if I don't get one, I might do something else. But for right now, I'm doing fine. But uh, also, too, I have added as much training as I possibly could to my resume. I have experience with every, every thing, everything that goes on with the brand I work with. Everything, everything. There isn't any part of it that I haven't done something with, that I haven't repaired, that I haven't looked at, that I haven't diagnosed. There isn't anything. And you need to get there, too, no matter where you are in your career. If you just started yesterday or if you're going to start tomorrow or if you've been working there for 10 years or 15 years, Get it all under your belt so you can do it all. Become more valuable. And then if you don't get the money, become an ex-employee. Because these companies make an ass load of money. They make an ass load of money. And I think they need to dole some of it out a little bit more in payroll. Just a little bit. We're not asking, you know, I mean, if you make, seriously, AutoNation making $20 billion, could they afford to pay you $2 an hour more? I think they could. I think they could. Are you worth it? Fuck yeah, you're worth it. God damn it. And let them know. See, I do this, this, and this for this company. I expect to be paid a little bit more. Every year, I expect to be paid a little bit more because prices out there, folks, prices are not going down. Gas went up. Everything else is going up. I mean, if you could even get into a restaurant now and get service, all that went up. Everything everything has gone up except your wages. Also, too, you need to keep an eye on the want ads. There are hundreds of thousands of jobs out there, and one of them might be a better job for you than the one you have now. So just take a look. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt you don't have to tell anybody about it if you don't want to, but take a look. Take a look and see what's out there and get some more money for yourself. Uh, we're in short supply and the demand is great. The value of the supply should go up. If they fight you on it, tell them the fuck off. All right? All right. Look, uh, I'm your Uncle Jimmy and I don't mean to get you wound up. Uh, it's just one of those things that the podcast is, it is just there for is to let you know that you're a valuable commodity. You're a valuable person. And I appreciate sincerely what you do. And I believe that you should be paid more money. I mean, if you feel like you're paid fairly, that's cool. But I have a feeling that there's a large majority of you who don't feel that way. And we could all certainly use more money. I don't think anybody out there has ever said, hey, we're going to give you a raise. And somebody said, yeah, I don't need a raise. Well, what? Is this opposite day? <laughs> All right. That's enough for your Uncle Jimmy. Getting you wound up, getting himself wound up. He's going to get the fuck out of here. And when he does that, he just goes, see ya. <laughs>